Hello, listeners. Welcome to 2020 and another episode of the Climate Ready Podcast. I'm Alex Maroner, joined as always by your other host, Ingrid Timbo. We're happy to have you here with us as we take a journey into the social sciences and learn more about adapting governance systems in response to environmental change. Hey, everyone. For this perspective, we're joined by Dr. Sarah Ebel, an environmental anthropologist who has done extensive research with native coastal communities in Chile to identify pathways to what she calls transformative resilience and the structures needed to support those socio-ecological changes. Then stick around, because after the interview, we'll hear from Alex Whitebrook in our Climate of Hope segment in partnership with the World Youth Parliament for Water. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us your reviews. Enjoy. Climate Ready is a product of Agua, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, an international members-based NGO working across technical and policy programs to mainstream resilient water resources management, focusing on the connections between water resources and climate adaptation and mitigation. The Climate Ready podcast is made possible with support from Deutsche Gesellschaft für Internationale Zusammenarbeit, or GIZ, on behalf of the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development, BMZ. For more information on GIZ, visit www.giz.de. Climate Ready would also like to acknowledge the continued support of the water global practice of the World Bank. For more information on the World Bank's activities around water, visit worldbank.org water. Today on Climate Ready, we're joined by Dr. Sarah Ebel, whose research focuses on the interactions between cultural, socio-political, and ecological systems in the context of adaptation to environmental change. Sarah's traveled to the coast of Chile for some of her more recent research, which we'll cover in just a bit. She's currently an assistant professor of environmental anthropology at Idaho State University here in the U.S. Sarah, thanks a lot for joining us to shed some light on these topics and for adding a little salt to our water today. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Sarah, for being here. So I want to kind of dive right in and start with a question about the types of work that you are currently undertaking. So many natural resource management contexts worldwide are are working towards understanding how to properly form ecosystem-based management. And most of your research, for example, in Chile over the past decade, has been focused around ideas of governance and specifically adapting our types of governance systems to support ecosystem-based management. Can you give a bit of context to your research for our listeners? Sure, that is correct. And I am an environmental anthropologist, so I'm very interested in human behavior and human environment relationships and how there's feedback loops and connections between how humans behave and how ecosystems are changing. And Historically, we've had a lot of natural resource management around the world that has been very single species or single system focused. So the idea behind ecosystem-based management is really trying to understand the linkages, not just between species, but also between species, the biophysical system, and humans. So there's a lot of data that needs to be collected and analyzed to understand how we can move those current management regimes that are more single species focused to newer ones that are ecosystem-based management focused. And one of those ways that we can do this is really looking at governance. And governance is defined as the shared collective effort of stakeholders to make decisions, choose goals, and act to achieve those goals. 
So that might sound easy in theory that we just bring these stakeholders together, but we really don't know how to bring diverse groups of stakeholders together and create shared governance systems and structures that can actually account for these different linkages between humans and the environment. So some of my work in Chile is really focused on how do we adapt pretty binary systems of co-management, which is joint governance between resource users and the government, to be more inclusive, to include more stakeholders and more understandings of ocean use or just general ecosystem use and designing much more flexible and adaptive governance structures moving forward. You know, it sounds like part of what you're doing is is looking at this intertwined nature and all these deep connections between groups of stakeholders and trying to really widen the scope of involvement. So what are some of the major stakeholder groups that you've been working with? And if you had to pin it down, what's maybe the single biggest problem they're facing? I forgot to mention this, but I work in the lakes region of Chile. So it's southern Chile in the region of northern Patagonia. And I work with small-scale fishers and indigenous communities, those two groups in particular. And those groups are not mutually exclusive. They often overlap. But this work with these stakeholders, what I've been learning is that it's very complex, even at the very local scale. So even within one community, there's very diverse groups and diverse needs and diverse objectives for adaptation and for governance. And for a long time in the literature, we've assumed that even at the local scale, individuals will have the same needs and objectives for adaptation. But what I'm finding in my work and what other scholars are finding is that that's actually not accurate. So the, the issue with creating shared governance and and bringing these stakeholders together is that they do have these different perceptions of of adaptation and of what they want moving forward and what they need to adapt to environmental change because they have very different socio-political histories some have very different access and power relations within governance structures that already exist so the stakeholders i work with sometimes are in conflict with each other in certain communities and other times they're working together but there's even more stakeholders involved in the situation that I'm working with in, in Chile, where there's like large-scale aquaculture farms, so huge international industries, Chile's National Fisheries Service, Chile's Agricultural Service. All these different groups are, are working separately and often coming together to, and interacting. And sometimes those interactions can cause conflict in when we're trying to think about how to adapt to pretty rapid climate change and socioeconomic change in the region. Yeah, and that adaptation is not a, a one-size-fits-all solution, that there may be conflicting or competing definitions of success, it sounds like. Exactly, and these individuals in this region are facing pretty large-scale and abrupt environmental change. Specifically, their sea surface temperatures are warming, their precipitation on land is decreasing, and there's increased nutrients in the water, like eutrophication, which is happening because of large-scale aquaculture. And all of these factors are coming together to trigger pretty large-scale events. And individuals in that region are really looking at how, how do they adapt moving forward. And the state of Chile is actually coming out with an ecosystem-based management plan in 2020. I'm interested to see how they're thinking about adapting the institutions that already exist to thinking about these future changes. Yeah, definitely. On this show, we're always talking about the impacts of climate change. It's, it's even in our title, this emphasis on being climate ready. In your work, however, you really focus on environmental change. What's the subtle or maybe not so subtle difference here? Yeah, that's a great question. I think about 
climate change a lot in my work and specifically how those climate change impacts such as sea surface temperature rise, sea level rise, decreased precipitation, things like that may affect the behavior of or the well-being of individuals that I work with. But I use, and I and I also just want to say that I think it's really important to use the term climate change, especially in the United States where there's not as much acceptance of that term and of the problem itself. So I use environmental change because I want to incorporate socioeconomic change into my kind of overall framework and discussion. And often we just think of climate change or biophysical change as affecting individuals on the ground impacting them. And sometimes we think about climate change as being by itself, but really we need to start thinking about how climate change is in many ways complicated by socioeconomic change. And that's not just in Chile, it's it's seen throughout the world. But for example, socioeconomic change would be the proliferation of aquaculture in the region that I work in, combined with changes in policies, which you know might support um, indigenous groups to finally be able to claim ancestral rights to areas. And that's a that's a group that I work with in Chile. And then that's also complicated by a history of fisheries management, which has empowered local fishermen. But now these power differentials are changing. And all of this is complicated by pretty significant climate change that the region's experiencing. So I guess I use the term environmental change to bring those pieces together because I think it is a term that can, or for my work at least, incorporate the human dimension in. Instead of humans just being impacted, humans are actively engaging with the ecosystem and with climate change impacts. And in many ways, individuals can change the direction in which they're headed. That's called agency, mm-hmm. where, hum- um, <laughs> where humans can actually and this might seem obvious, but we actually overlook it often in management and governance where humans can actually change change their behavior, change what's happening. They can act collectively and change or possibly change policies and kind of create the future that they'd like to create. That doesn't always happen because there's also individuals that might have been have a history of oppression um, or have been marginalized in, in certain ways which who might not have the same abilities to act collectively. But I think the term environmental change allows me to try to understand those interactions between human agency, climate change impacts, and then this like larger scale socioeconomic change that's happening that we see at the local level, but it's really happening worldwide through globalization. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing. I'm I'm really glad you brought up the issue of agency because that's a big focus of this podcast, you know, is in dealing with large scale issues like socioeconomic change or climate change or these sorts of things of forces that seem kind of maybe beyond our own abilities to interact with sometimes, except just to respond to, we can actually make change happen and that that we do have agency. And so we're trying to, through this work, highlight folks who are <laughs> who are acting for change or working with others to enable them to also act and, and find their own agency. So I'm really glad you brought that up. I think agency is just so important because how I explain to my students usually is we're, we're all acting under structures and that's a very anthropological way to look at it, but policies that are in place, but we don't, we're not just individuals that are just acting on the ground and not with like no direction. We can actually act horizontally. We can act vertically. Uh, we can act collectively and we can 
try to create the changes that we want to see. The issue with governance really is how do we figure out, can we actually decide a kind of a vision, a collaborative vision for the future and, and depending on what area you're talking about, and can we actually represent every voice that should be represented? Because there's a lot of groups in Chile and everywhere that have been marginalized and that may be impoverished and may not have the actual resources they need or access to have their voices heard. So this type of understanding how do we transform governance in terms of ad adapting to climate change is really trying to get all the stakeholders on board and, and it's going to, you know, it takes a long time. Again, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because often when we're talking about climate change and adaptation, we spend a lot of time talking about hard infrastructure and infrastructure management operations, et cetera. But equally important, along with infrastructure, are these institutions that you're talking about and the adaptive capacity of, of governance systems. So you've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but how would you describe a, a good example of positive or transformative governance and what institutions or what stakeholders are involved in this process? The first thing that comes to mind, well, there's two things that come to mind, an applied sense of what I've seen as in terms of transformative governance, and then a theoretical idea of what is suggested as transformative governance. So I'll start with the theory and then go quickly to the applied. For a long time, co-management, which again is that joint governance between resource users and the government, was seen as very adaptive and probably with a higher adaptive capacity to things like climate change. But one of the problems is it overlooks other stakeholders. So on land is the same thing when there's a lot of different moving parts and a lot of different stakeholders. If you only have a binary co-management system, it's not collaborative. It's not integrating these different diverse thoughts about where governance and management and adaptation should go. So the literature suggested a move towards polycentric governance, which is a much more inclusive, integrative, collaborative governance structure, which has been seen in a couple different areas around the world, but is very hard to achieve because the idea is that there's these different institutions and they're managing certain things and they're interacting with each other vertically and horizontally and they're talking to each other, but they're also maintaining their own cultural like institutional norms. So they're independent of each other, yet they're interacting. And to try to achieve something like polycentric governance, it really requires more collaborative decision-making, it really requires trying to overcome conflict which exists at the local, regional, you know, national, international scale before you can achieve this type of structure. So it takes time to do that. But Chile is actually a really good example of transformations in governance over time. So for example, in the ocean, Chile, the state implemented a fisheries management plan in 1991, which was that co-management structure. And it had great outcomes for the ecosystem, it empowered fishers, but again, it, it ignored the fact that aquaculture was developing and indigenous peoples were finally getting ancestral rights again, or the ability to claim ancestral rights to ocean spaces and land, like near shore coastal areas. So in 2012, they amended it so that you could create these management committees that would actually allow for more individuals and more stakeholder groups to start interacting. So a management committee wouldn't just have fishers and the government on it. It would actually have representatives from the indigenous communities, representatives from aquaculture, representatives from processing plants, et cetera, within that group. And that was a first legislative step towards polycentric governance. And so now we're trying to understand how do you actually create those management committees? Are there groups that are creating them, which there are actually in a community that I work in on Chiloé Island and on Cood, 
they have created a management committee and they're actually having a lot of success in terms of collaboration, but also ocean management and freshwater management, where they've created protected areas around river systems on the island. And then they're creating protected areas in the ocean and aquaculture, like small scale aquaculture areas and in the traditional areas where people are diving and fishing. So that is a, I think, a really good example of positive transformative governance. It's a process. And I think that often in the literature, we think about governance as an outcome, but I really think we should think about it as a process that's continually changing and, and continually adapting to the changes that it's seeing, whether it's socioeconomic change, changes in stakeholder groups, or climate change. A follow-up question on the, along the same lines. When you and I were speaking the other day, we talked about the concept of resilience, and I'm glad it came up because you actually have a really different take on the term. Or at least you see problems maybe in the way that it's being used, especially when it comes to groups of people. So could you tell us a little bit more about this? Sure. Just before I state this, I am studying resilience and there's been a lot of social theorists and anthropologists and other social scientists that have have said and will say similar things is what I'm about to say. So it's not only coming from me. I just like to recognize that. So resilience theoretically comes from, or the one that's used for socio-ecological resilience comes from the ecological literature from the 1970s. And it's this concept that a an ecological system can maintain its functions, its connectedness, and basically if it's if the system's hit with an external disturbance, it can bounce back to its initial state or somehow maintain the structure itself. This concept is now applied to socio-ecological resilience, which makes sense in many ways, but I think, and as other scholars have discussed, that sometimes it overlooks or it assumes that we want to go back to the state that we were in before, Mm -hmm. which might make sense possibly for ecosystems, but for social systems, it's assuming that individuals and institutions should go back to what they were. And so that might be good for some groups and for some institutions themselves, but that can also essentialize groups. Essentializing means that we keep individuals the same way, or we think about them the same way. So for example, essentializing indigenous group would be saying, well, you have to meet these requirements to be indigenous, instead of thinking about culture as something that evolves and something that that interacts with ecosystems and continually changes, which it does. When I think about resilience, my concern is that we are essentializing communities. So for example, I work very closely with small-scale fishers. Small-scale fishers are culturally and socially connected to fishing, and a lot of their social connections on land are associated with fishing. But more and more, that livelihood is being threatened, and they want more diversity. The people I work with want more diversity for income and just in order to be more what they would consider more resilient. So that kind of resilience probably falls under this discussion of transformative resilience, where these individuals can transform to something new and they may maintain some of those functions or some of that connectedness that they have, but they they get to choose what it looks like for them instead of us as scholars or us as resource managers choosing to keep them in this scenario where they're basically the people I work with at, at least are impoverished and are having health consequences from their occupations and things like that. So what we should be thinking about is not assuming what people want or what assuming what people should do, but really engaging with them at the local level and asking them, you know, how do you envision your own resilience and how do you want to move forward and really trying to integrate that that concept of social resilience and social transformation into this discussion of socio-ecological resilience. 
Yeah, I think it's really important to point out the transformational aspect as well, um, because I think a lot of times we assign a, a value, like a positive value to resilience sometimes, and, and it, it isn't necessarily that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, it's value, it's, the term itself is value neutral. I think we, we forget that sometimes. So Sarah, the last question we have for you could serve maybe as a call to action of sorts. As a community focused on adapting to climate change, are there particular socioecological factors that we're perhaps not adequately taking into consideration and some ideas that we could begin to incorporate into our own work? I think often from a literature standpoint and what we might be missing in terms of, of research, one piece we're really missing is this feedback between humans and the environment. And even though it's often discussed in socioecological systems and, and research on the systems, we still often think about humans impacting the environment and we don't culturally think about how the environment's influencing our behavior. And I think that requires a shift in how we discuss it in research and really how we, we operationalize it in research. And then I think community members can contribute to that type of cognitive shift where we, we're not just impacting the environment, we're actually responding to it and, and influencing it and it's influencing our behaviors. And the last thing I really think that's lacking in terms of my experience with my own work is that when we think about socioecological resilience or, or climate change adaptation from a natural resource management perspective, I don't often see the discussion of individuals' health or access to health care or things like that come up in those discussions. And I think it's really important. And the people that I work with, many and many natural resource users, have health consequences associated with their occupation. And it affects your long-term health, it affects the health of your family, it affects the resilience of your own family in terms of economic income, just social interactions, if you if you can no longer interact with your children, for example. And then it, it kind of is pervasive throughout the community that I've been seeing. And that's something that I'm really interested in getting into in the future, is really looking at how individuals' health might affect their own adaptation at the individual level, but also at the institutional level. Can we do things with policies or institutions or, or like you were talking about infrastructure to actually mitigate some of those health effects for occupational hazards? Yeah, I think health is definitely underrepresented. Um, and actually, thank you, Sarah, because that is a great, <laughs> a great uh, idea for uh, another podcast. So <laughs> I'm going to add that to the list. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. This thank you both. Thanks for reaching out. You know, I'm always happy when we're able to branch out a little bit, such as we were able to do in this episode. That was the first time I've talked to an environmental anthropologist, and it's a good reminder that there are so many important social dimensions to issues we often relegate to the natural sciences, like natural resources management and climate adaptation. But Sarah brought up a number of really great points that rang true for me. As someone who works often in climate policy, I support her idea that we need to think of transformative governance as a process and not just an end goal. Some of her points actually reminded me of our conversation last season with Elizabeth Rush, making sure that any and all actions we take in the name of climate adaptation give equal considerations to all stakeholder groups, including and especially the marginalized ones. No one's saying that that's an easy task, but it's something that she praises as part of polycentric governance, and it's something that we often mention under the umbrella of bottom-up climate adaptation. Collaborating with the stakeholders to hear what resilience means to them instead of making assumptions or imposing your own beliefs. 
We could go a lot deeper in all these topics, but for now we'll recommend that you check out some of Sarah's work linked in the episode description. And with that, we'll move on to our Climate of Hope segment. This week, we'll hear from Alex Whitebrook, World Youth Parliament for Water's Interim Vice President and Focal Point for Oceana, as well as the Fundraising Manager for Water Inception, an NGO based in Geneva. Alex will tell us about encouraging trends in China's agriculture sector that give him a sense of hope and real optimism for the future. Hi, Climate Ready listeners. It's a pleasure to be invited on this podcast and give you my two cents. Working as the Vice President for the World Youth Parliament for Water, I see small glimpses of progress in the work that's being done by young people around the world every day. Our members who have shared their stories of hope so far this season have each shown you just how much there is to be hopeful for. I myself have spent time working in the crossover between the water development sector and the world of private enterprise in China. Though there's much to be fearful of in this part of the world, with an extreme water scarcity in China's northern industrial regions, and devastating water pollution in its often flooded agricultural south, steps are now being taken to turn things around. It's well known that the highest consumers of water in any economy are the agricultural and industrial sectors. What both industry and agriculture have in common, whether operated under public or private interests, is that they respond to the demand of consumers and are cognizant of relevant risks to their operations. Working with organizations such as China Water Risk, I feel that recently, We're starting to see sustainable water management messages successfully communicated to these sectors in terms they understand, and that is financial risk. Talking about water in financial terms can seem rather counterintuitive or strange to people who are well entrenched in the water and development sectors. However, waternomics and aquanomics are increasingly popular terms in the water sector, and there are many research circles investigating the importance of financial risk in water considerations. In the past, these ideas have fallen on deaf ears, but in China, people are finally starting to listen. Just last year, I was fortunate enough to assist the Alliance for Water Stewardship in an ongoing research project of theirs in Jiangsu and Shanghai provinces, where they have helped negotiate government incentives for industrial sites that achieve water stewardship certification. What this shows is that the financial risk that water imposes on industry and agriculture are finally starting to be recognized, even in places with historically poor environmental conservation laws like China. This paradigm shift wouldn't be happening if not for the strong multi-stakeholder cooperation that organizations like the Alliance for Water Stewardship champion. The progress in China specifically would not have occurred if not for the inclusion of government, industry and community representatives alike in spreading the importance of water stewardship. As members of the World Youth Parliament for Water, my colleagues who have contributed to this podcast and I are all pushing for greater involvement of young professionals in the water sector. In this way, we also champion multi-stakeholder engagement. And the success and growth that we've seen in recent years brings me to the fundamental change that gives me the most reason for hope for a more sustainable future. And that is greater cooperation between people of all backgrounds to overcome the climate crisis. All right, well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks again to our earlier guest, Dr. Sarah Ebel, and a big thanks to Alex Wybrook for his Climate of Hope contribution. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter using at ClimateReadyPod for the latest updates. Until next time. Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Timbo.